0: Well, good evening. My name's Simon. I'd love it if you could keep your Bibles open as we spend time in God's Word. Uh, but before we dive in, how about we pray? Let's talk to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that you teach us by it, you rebuke us by it, you correct us by it, and you train us to live lives that are pleasing to you. We pray, Lord, that our heart would be soft and mushy, it would be absorbing your Word at every opportunity. And we pray, pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Psalm 143, a psalm of David, begins with, Lord, hear my prayer. Listen to my cry for mercy. In your faithfulness and righteousness, come to my relief. Do not bring your servant into judgment, for no one living is righteous before you. These verses, these verses are the argument of the psalm. And they make for quite an abrupt introduction to the problem that David is wrestling with as he writes. In verse 1, David asks God to hear his prayer, to hear his plea for mercy. Mercy not on the basis of David's merits or how great a person he is, but mercy as a function of God's faithful and righteous character. Verse 2 then gives us the content of the prayer. And David doesn't mince his words here either. He pleads with God not to bring him into judgment because no man can, be claimed, can claim to be right before God in and of himself. I don't know how you felt as you read those few verses, uh, but to me, it feels almost like David is being too forward. He's being a little too open with us. As far as the Psalm's concerned, we've kind of only just met him. I think it seems a bit jarring, to be honest. But if we pause, if we take a step back, if we, if we take a moment to think about it, isn't that often the effect of despair? Isn't that how it sometimes feels when you're in that space, when you're crying out for mercy? Perhaps you've experienced one of those moments yourself. You're bottling up a lot of anxiety, or there's some deep, deep grief inside. And all it takes is for someone to ask you how you are. And then it all comes flooding out. That person might be a friend, they might be a stranger, but suddenly they're hearing an awful lot about your life. In fact, David's headspace in verses 1 and 2 actually reminds me of the despair of a guy called Horatio Spafford. It's quite a name, and perhaps some of you have heard of him. So Spafford, he's an American lawyer. He grew up in Chicago, and after becoming a partner at a major firm, he slowly but surely started investing in real estate throughout the city. Yet Horatio, he was still a devout man. He loved his work. He loved his wife. He loved his children. But most of all, he loved the Lord Jesus. And this led him to become an elder in the Presbyterian Church and pour an awful lot of his quite substantial resources into evangelism. But in 1871, everything changed for Horatio. Over the three months, from July to October, Chicago only received about 25 mil of rain. And as Australians, I think we know how this story goes. The dry, wooden frame buildings meant that the place literally became a giant, city-sized tinderbox. On the 8th of October, fire broke out. And over the next day, it consumed almost a third of the city, and almost all of Horatio's investments. He was a man who trusted in the Lord, like David, but then who would also experienced incredible grief. grief, the kind of grief that David writes about in Psalm 143. Yet Spafford, who we'll come back to a little bit later, he still knew God's mercy in Jesus. His writings, and he wrote quite a lot, show us that he knew how Jesus is the servant king, foreshadowed in verses 1 and 2 of the psalm how Jesus is the one who's righteous before God and was brought into judgment on our behalf to reconcile us with God. Simply, Spafford, well, he came to God in despair. He pleaded with God for mercy on God's terms, knowing God's character. And then he sought to live to God's glory. And this is the pattern that David takes us through in the remainder of the psalm in verses 3 to 12. So let's get into it. Let's have a look at verses 3 to 4. Here David writes, The enemy pursues me. He crushes me to the ground. He makes me dwell in the darkness like those long dead. So my spirit grows faint within me. My heart within me is dismayed. Unlike Psalm 51, which we spent a while on a few weeks ago, a psalm which directly references the infamous Bathsheba incident, Verses 3 to 4 of Psalm 143 sees David's experiences of opposition, of pursuit, of fear and threat, kind of superimposed over one another. Throughout the verses, there's echoes of David being pursued by Saul in 1 Samuel. There's echoes of his bloody path to the throne and then Absalom's attempted coup in 2 Samuel. However, these events aren't really the priority of the psalmist. Rather, the language of the psalm functions to shift this hard historical context, kind of the events of it all, into the background and focuses on David's emotional and spiritual state, what it looks like, what it feels like to live under threat. You might notice in verses 3 to 4, David dwells, he remains in darkness and stillness akin to death. And accordingly, his spirit, a spirit which Genesis 2.7 shows us is integral to life itself, well, his spirit grows faint. I can only imagine that this was Spafford's experience on hearing that his life's work had gone up in flames. And perhaps you've been in that that same emotional place too at one point or another. If so, maybe you're seeing how verses 3 to 4 position our hearts to be dismayed, to yearn with God's anointed one, with Israel's King David for mercy. In fact, I'd suggest that these first few verses of the psalm are actually more about heart knowledge than head knowledge. They're more about working on our empathy with David than dissecting the historical details. And it's in this context, this context of emotional distress, which I hope we're feeling, that in verses 5 and 6, David gives us a glimpse of how his mind wanders to God's faithfulness and God's righteousness, characteristics that we have introduced to us in verse 1. And now as we read verses 5 and 6, I'd love you to keep an eye out for a couple of changes in the psalm. Try and compare those verses to verses 3 to 4. Let's read. I remember the days of long ago. I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you. I thirst for you like a parched land. Did you pick up on any of the changes in comparison to verses 3 and 4? They're pretty subtle ones but I'd like to suggest they're actually quite important for how we understand the broader arc of the psalm. The first change in verses 5 to 6 is that the picture that the psalm paints of David's world, it shifts from a focus on his emotional world to start looking at his thought processes. David remembers, he meditates and considers in verses 5 and 6 rather than being crushed, dwelling in darkness and becoming dismayed you might have noticed his language is far less emotionally charged. Maybe you found it. It provokes a bit of a less empathetic response in you. Meanwhile, the second change, it's a bit of a technical one. But if you look at the verses, you'll see that in verses 3 and 4, David is acted on. He's kind of pushed around by things outside of him. For example, the enemy pursuing him. While well, in verses 5 and 6, David is the one with a bit more control. He's acting. He's meditating. He's spreading out his hands. He's doing things. And these changes are actually significant, because they show us that the one who believes in the Lord is not completely at a loss. They're not completely without agency, even in the direst of circumstances. Despite the storm clouds gathering in David's emotional world, David has recourse to the immutable acts of God in history, like saving Israel from slavery, that testify to God's faithfulness to his people, that testify to God's righteousness beyond all other gods, And you know what? So do we. Have you ever felt like you're really under the hammer? Well, things are just spinning out of control and you're stuck there and you're going along for the ride. You don't know where you're going, but you're going there. Well, the good news, and maybe you've experienced this, if you've talked to God in prayer or turned to his word, turned to the good news of Jesus, perhaps you've actually experienced a sense of relief. This is, in a sense, the pattern that David's following in the psalm. He's experiencing distress, he's turning to God's word, and as we'll see, he then experiences relief. He's turning to God's acts in history to remind himself of who God is and what he's done, and it's not for the sake of kind of a superficial nostalgia or as an exercise in denial or even as a form of therapy, but rather he does it because it provokes him to trust in God, to outstretch his hands. Isn't that a remarkable image? God's king over all Israel outstretching his hands in mute appeal in a demonstration of confidence that God will be consistent with his character throughout history and preserve those who trust in him. How are you going with that outstretched hand kind of trust? It's not really in our society's DNA, is it? And perhaps it never has been, uh, but it's certainly critical to the Christian life. Remember our friend Horatio Stafford? Uh, well, his story, it doesn't end with the Chicago Fire of 1871. Two years later, after he'd rebuilt his life and his business, and things were starting to go a bit better, his wife and his four daughters uh, they decided to go off to Europe for a holiday for some well-deserved rest with friends. However, and perhaps this is the part of the story you've heard before, at the last minute, Horatio is held back on business. He misses the ship, and his family sail for Europe without him. Seven days into the voyage, at 2 a.m. during the fierce North Atlantic winter, their ship, the Ville de Havre, on which Horatio's family were travelling, collides with another ship. Uh, But the Hollywood romance of James Cameron, Titanic, is nowhere to be seen. After 12 minutes of panic, despair, grief, and tears, the Ville de Havre breaks up and begins its three mile journey to the bottom of the ocean, taking 226 people with her, including Horatio's four daughters. Annie, Maggie, Bessie, and Tanetta. Eleven, nine, seven, and three. Horatio's wife, Anna, was found floating unconscious on the debris, and shortly after being dragged out of the freezing water, testified to another survivor. God gave me four daughters Now they've been taken from me. Someday, I'll understand why. To my mind, these words reflect Anna's outstretched hands. Hands outstretched like David's, pleading with God for mercy, pleading for understanding. And I think that it's a good model of how Psalm 143 expects us to approach God when we experience trauma. Perhaps you've noticed how when you're stuck in a moment of trial, there's a pull to lower your eyes from God. There's a pull to look away from his work of bringing things together under Christ, to turn inward. And while this is a completely understandable response to suffering, it has a tendency to result in us trying to understand our trauma primarily in relation to ourselves, in relation to our immediate context, what's going on with us, rather than in relation to who God is and what God has done. Now, this tendency on the small scale, it's part of being human. It's a wrestle of our life in the world. But at the extreme it can see us pleading with God and seeking to experience his mercy on our terms and according to our own timetable rather than at his prerogative. As an extreme example, take take the so-called deathbed confession. While some are no doubt doubt genuine, and I don't want to for a moment criticise that, uh, to my mind, planning to rely on one, especially as a young person, Now, planning to rely on one is to treat God's mercy a little bit like a tap. A tap that I can ignore for most of my life and then turn on at my convenience when facing death. And this flies in the face of Psalm 143. And for those of you who've seen the film Amadeus, it's a bit of an older film now from the 80s. It's about the life of the Austrian composer Wolfgang Mozart. Perhaps you know what I mean. The film is actually a three-hour-long confession from the perspective of Mozart's arch-rival, Antonio Salieri, who's nearing the end of his life and is confessing to a priest in the hope of absolution. Yet as the film progresses and as you listen to what Salieri is saying, his request for mercy increasingly sounds like an effort to justify himself, to justify his own decisions. He pleads, all I wanted was to sing to God. He gave me that longing, and then he made me mute. Why? If he didn't want me to praise him with music, why implant the desire like a lust in my body and then deny me the talent? Can you hear any echoes of yourself in there? It might be a small thing, it might be a large trauma. Friends, when we're crushed, or we're dwelling in darkness, to use David's words, it's all too easy for our pleas to God for mercy to become like Salieri's, to become bitter, presumptuous, self-serving, rather than racked with grief, but trusting, hands outstretched, like Anna Spafford's. Psalm 143 commends to us that hands-outstretched kind of pleading, which reflects that you know and trust the God with whom you're pleading. In fact, in verses 7 to 12 of the psalm, David models how our pleas can be and must be shaped by God's character. First, he says we need to know our relationship with God. We need to understand it. Second, we need to respond rightly to God. And third, we need to actually be confident in the reason behind it all. We need to know what's going on. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. Answer me quickly, Lord. Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I'll be like those who go down to the pit. Let mourning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I've put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for I entrust to you my life. These verses contain the first of 11 petitions that David makes to God throughout the remaining verses of the psalm. And they all hinge on his relationship with God. It's relational. He uses particularly relational language in asking God to answer him. He pleads with God not to hide his face, to send word of his unfailing love, to show him the way to go. These are the words of someone who is deeply bonded to their maker by trust, a trust that, if you have a look at the verses, extends to his very life. I think this trust is actually made a lot more significant by the background to verse 7. Uh, The irony of David's request for God to not hide his face or else he'll go down to the pit uh, would not have been lost on the original hearers of the psalm. Israel was commanded on pain of death to go to the most elaborate efforts not to come face to face with God. Think back to Exodus 33 where God places Moses in a cleft in the rock so that he doesn't see his face. I think of the way the tabernacle was built elaborate systems to prevent anyone accidentally coming face to face with God. Or we could think of the prophet Isaiah's woe at seeing the Lord in Isaiah 6. Yet here, David's so confident in God's promises that he calls on him not to hide his face, not to sever their relationship, not to abandon him. And did you notice that David actually makes that appeal on the basis of his trust, of his faith in God? Not David's merits, despite him being king over Israel. This principle is important for us, because like David, our relationship with God and that great privilege of seeing God's face exists on the basis of faith. Our second reading from Ephesians 2, 1-10 reminds us that all people are spiritually dead in sin, facing God's judgment. But God, in his mercy, makes those who put their trust in Jesus alive. Our first spiritual life, so we're dwelling with him in heaven now, and we'll then be physically face-to-face with Jesus in the new creation. So just as David's faith, his relationship with God, conditions his pleas for an experience of mercy, we too need to take care to plead with God on his terms, in relationship with God, through faith in Jesus. Uh, which, Which kind of leads me to an important question. Do you have a relationship with God in Jesus? Are you trusting him? Or are you going through life expecting God to hear your pleas and grant you mercy on your own terms, according to your own timetable? Perhaps a little bit like Salieri. As someone who recognizes the need to plea with God according to God's character, David knows that the necessary response to mercy Is then to live in a way that pleases God, that honours God's character. He first alludes to the idea at the start of verse 2 by describing himself as the Lord's servant, one who does the master's will. And David then appeals to God in verses 9 and 10. He says, Rescue me from my enemies, Lord, for I hide myself in you. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. May your good spirit lead me on level ground. Did you notice how in these verses David recognises that God's mercy? Uh, His rescue entails change on his part, the servant's part, David's part, not on God's part. For David, being saved by God meant being saved out of fear, out of desperation, out of the clutches of his enemies, but then being saved into God's embrace, into his purposes, into his plans, into a life led by his spirit and loving his word. It's the same kind of attitude that we actually heard last week when we looked at Psalm 119. And it's also the pattern of God's mercy to us today. God still delivers those who trust in him and plead for his mercy in accordance with his character. And this is most clearly seen, and many of you have experienced it, it's clearly seen in the way God delivers people through Jesus out of death, out of sin, out of rebellion, and into the kingdom of the Son who he loves. However, this doesn't involve God accommodating himself to our expectations of Jesus' kingdom or, or giving us a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure. No. Followers of Jesus are expected to respond to God's great mercy in delivering them by becoming a good citizen of the kingdom, by asking God to teach them his will, to be led by his Spirit. Romans 12 describes this as the renewing of your mind so that your new mind would lead to a radically transformed life. You'll be serving one another. Feeding your enemy if he's hungry. So if you're one of the many people in the room who has a relationship with God, if you've experienced his mercy in Christ, praise God for that. Perhaps the next question is, are you living a life that reflects the mercy that you've received? Are you eager for God to teach you his will through his word? Even when that might mean hard changes. And We need to acknowledge that living as a follower of Jesus is not always easy. It certainly wasn't easy for Horatio and Anna Spafford. In fact, think back to our series in 1 Peter. Following Jesus is often really hard. Jesus himself says it first means denying yourself, denying career aspirations, perhaps the hopes you pin on kids, your wealth, denying a desire for a comfortable, inoffensive middle-class existence, and which, as an aside, I think is a very real temptation for many Christians in the West. Um, Acceptability is incredibly, incredibly enticing. But following Jesus isn't only denying yourself. It also means taking up your cross day to day, bearing the stigma of following a crucified king, bearing insult, depending where you are in the world, bearing an increasingly real risk of imprisonment. So we need to keep going. We need a good reason to keep going. And I think Psalm 143, to kind of wrap us up, helps us here as well. It helps us by telling us that the hardship is worth it when we understand the reason behind it all. Look at verses 11 and 12. For your name's sake, Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring me out of trouble. In your unfailing love, silence my enemies, destroy all my foes, for I am your servant. Just like in verse 2, David pleads with God to preserve his life, to not bring him into judgment on the basis of who God is and for God's glory, for his name's sake. David knows that God's actions throughout history proceed from his character, a character that is loving, that is righteous, that's deserving of all praise, and consequently he has confidence that despite the enemies, despite the foes, despite his dark emotional world that we were looking at from which his pleas emerge, God will use that hardship. It has a purpose. And ultimately, not just any old purpose. It has the honorable, the noble purpose of bringing glory to God. David, he sees the big picture. He raises his eyes. And he can do this because he knows that it's God's character that needs to shape his understanding of mercy not his own. It's the same for Horatio and Anna Spafford. When Anna arrived on dry ground in Wales, she telegraphed Horatio saying, saved alone, what shall I do? I can only imagine the emptiness a mother would feel at writing those kind of words about her four children. Yet in all the sorrow, In all the despair, by God's grace, the Spaffords let their knowledge of God shape their grief. After traveling across the Atlantic to meet Anna, Horatio wrote, On Thursday last, we passed over the spot where she went down, in mid-ocean, the waters three mile deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They're safe. And while this is true, it wasn't all he wrote on that voyage. As he passed over the spot in the Atlantic where the Havre sunk, Horatio penned the words of that hymn, a haunting hymn when you know the backstory, the hymn It's Well With My Soul. In words not unlike David's, he wrote, Though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control. That Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. So, if you have a relationship with God through Jesus, if you can sing those words about yourself, Christ has shed his blood for your soul, if you're responding to God's mercy in the way that you live and you're suffering, let me encourage you to remember the reason behind it all. God is working. He's working to bring all things together under Christ for his glory and for your good. So keep going. Lift up your eyes to the cross. Follow David and ultimately Jesus' model of entrusting himself to God in suffering. We can think of Jesus and his prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. We can think of Jesus breathing his last on the cross. Confidently plead with God according to his character. Trust in his unfailing love for you. And if you've joined us this evening and you don't have a relationship with God, if you haven't responded to God's mercy in Jesus, or perhaps you weren't even aware that that mercy existed, well, let me humbly encourage you. Consider it today. Think hard about it. Think hard about it over the next week. And why don't you join us next Sunday as we hear about Jesus, the light of the world? Come to God on his terms. Enjoy his mercy the way that he wants you to. Trust in Jesus. Be forgiven of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy in the Lord Jesus. We pray that rather than turning inward in trial and trauma and despair, we would gaze upon the cross. We would know your character of righteousness and faithfulness. We would come to you no matter how desperate our pleas, trusting in all that you've done throughout history for your people and especially what you've done through Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.